taking your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Let us pray again upon the reading of God's Word. Our gracious God and Father, we pray for your help now on the occasion of your word being read publicly in the preparation to hear it preached. Father, we ask that you would bless this which you have ordained and have commanded to be done. We pray that the voice of the Master would be recognized and heard and believed. We pray that as the triumph of our King and the mercies of his heart are heralded forth, that we would love him, that we would indeed turn away from the things of the world that we love too much, wrongly, and love our Savior more, and so even be better used to the world, to the praise of his glory. Help us now, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, after the angels went away, which we heard in our call to worship, the shepherds did go to Bethlehem. They did find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And then we come to verse 22 of Luke 2. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Joseph and Mary lived a pilgrim life. Because Jesus Christ came to them, because Christ graciously called them to his salvation, because Christ graciously appointed them into his service, Joseph and Mary were always on the move, always leaving the old creation, always going further up and further in to the new. They were Christian pilgrims. Think with me about the constant movement of their lives as recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. First, Joseph and Mary had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of Caesar's decree that all the world be registered. Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem by foot. Joseph and Mary had to travel while Mary was pregnant. Joseph and Mary had to live among the livestock in a stable, likely a cave, because there was no room in the inn. And Joseph and Mary had to lay baby Jesus in a manger. Then Joseph and Mary had to travel on foot from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for the firstborn son, according to the law. Then Joseph and Mary had to travel to Egypt to escape Herod's wicked scheme to kill all the male children who were under two years old. Then, after Herod was dead, Joseph and Mary had to travel by foot up to Nazareth. Then Joseph and Mary repeatedly traveled each year to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Then, on one occasion, when Jesus was 12, Joseph and Mary had to travel in a panic for three days through the streets of Jerusalem looking for their son. The infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke are full of exhausting foot travel 
for Mary and Joseph. Here is how one writer summed it all up. The Holy Family's first few years were not tranquil. They were filled with grueling travel during the hardest part of pregnancy, a birth in worse than a barn, no steady income, an assassination attempt, two desert crossings on foot with an infant, living in a foreign country, waiting on God for guidance and provisions just in the nick of time. It was difficult, expensive, time-consuming, career-delaying, and full of uncertainty. Close quote. Now, it would be going too far to say Joseph and Mary never had days of tranquility or peace and quiet. But the gospel writers do not record those kind of days in the infancy narratives. They record days of difficulty, days of disruption, days of dislocation. The gospel writers want us to see that because of Jesus Christ, Joseph and Mary lived a pilgrim life. Christ did not come to settle us more comfortably and peacefully in the world. Christ came to redeem us, to make us a people not of the world, a pilgrim people who belong to Christ in heaven. We should not be surprised at how the Spirit under the pen of Matthew and Mark, excuse me, Matthew and Luke have recorded this. Because when God called Abraham and started to pull together a sign of the new creation and the formation of Israel, Abraham's life was full of pilgrimage and movement. And so here, as the new creation comes to its fulfillment in the birth of Christ and his resurrection, we see the same imprint of the rule of God on his people, movement, because we are but sojourners and have only and always been sojourners in this earth. Beloved, the life of every Christian is a pilgrim life, which in the simplest way of saying it means Christians are not at home in this world. Christians are on their way to somewhere else. When the Christian sees all the things of this present age that can possibly be seen, the Christian is not fooled into thinking any of these things are the things of home. They are not. We, of course, have to put our hands on those things. We have to put our eyes on those things. We cannot close our eyes to them and say, I'm blind for Christ. We cannot shove our hands and keep them in our pockets and say, I'm doing it for Christ. We have to think something about the things we see. We have to do something with the things we can touch. Money, food, clothing, art, music, business, education, marriage, parenting. Christians, Christian pilgrims still see and still touch all these things. But at the same time, because we are pilgrims and those things are not the things of home, we are always holding them loosely, always making them subservient, always making them second or third or fourth or fifth, never first, 
Marriage, never first. Parenting, never first. Money, never first. Always subservient. Because we are pilgrims, we are even denying ourselves some of those things or denying ourselves more of those things. Because none of those things are the things of home. Those things are only in our hands for one reason. This is why God has allowed you to be married. This is why God has allowed you to have children. This is why your back is able to hold up your skeleton today. Those things are in your hands for one reason, to be used in a way that reveals to your own soul and to the souls of all men how much better is our real home, our eternal home, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's no other reason why you have anything. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In his children's edition, in a children's edition of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the Christian pilgrim is a rabbit. The young rabbit lives in a great city called Destruction. Every now and then, strangers come into this great city, and the strangers seem to always be telling the same stories. And Rabbit has heard these stories over and over again. Well, I'm going to cheat. I have that edition right here. I just want to read you this paragraph. There's Christian Pilgrim. Here's what the stories sounded like. There is a beautiful country, the strangers would say, far away from this city. A very good and wise king rules over it, who loves little creatures dearly. The prince to whom your city belongs is wicked and cruel, and he hates our good king. But one day an army will come from the king's country to fight against your wicked prince, and this city will be burned, and all the townsfolk in it will be killed. Then the children asked, what will become of us? And the wise strangers always answered, you must leave this city now. While you are young, while you are strong, travel to the king's country. In the celestial city where he lives, you will be quite safe. Pilgrim's Progress. The Christian's true home is where the one king who loves us now lives. Colossians 3.1 says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Christ alone has exalted your nature in his own person, above the whole creation. Where he is in your own flesh and bone right now, there is your true home. Through his death and resurrection, Christ has restored your and my fallen nature and has opened the everlasting kingdom of glory to us. That's home. This is not. It should be a great relief to you. Here you are strangers, sojourners, exiles. Here you are pilgrims, 
a people away from home. People who do not make all these away places and these away things into a home. That's what a Christian pilgrim is. Which means, as a Christian, you must live differently than all the people who think the old creation is home. Many passages of Scripture teach that everyone who has faith in Christ is a pilgrim. Is this a near identity for you or a far one? Do you easily access this? Or is it very strange to you? Why would it be hard to access this? I'm here to help, help it become very close to you. And yes, we're going to get back to Joseph and Mary. But we are integrating some biblical theology that the gospel writers want us to see in Joseph and Mary. One of the most vibrant texts in the Old Testament that tells us that we are pilgrims is 1 Chronicles 29.15. Very late in his life, King David, in a public prayer, says, We are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. Israel was a pilgrim people even when they were in the land of Canaan, even when they were safely secured in the promised land. They were but travelers. David confessed that he, like his fathers, was only passing through, a sojourner. A heavenly country was his permanent hope, not a plot of earth. In the New Testament, Peter calls the church the elect exiles, 1 Peter 1.1. A few verses later, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 1 Peter 1.17. And then a little later, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's 1 Peter 2.11. An exile is just like a pilgrim, someone not at home. Then there is Hebrews 11.13, a passage about all the Old Testament believers in Christ. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. A few verses later it says, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is... They desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven fifteen, And then two chapters later, we hear this. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's Hebrews 13, 14. Now, in those words, we hear the heart of every Christian pilgrim. We hear that the heart of every Christian pilgrim In those very last words you just heard, every Christian pilgrim's heart is controlled by two convictions. Did you hear it? I'll read it to you again. Here we have no lasting city, conviction number one, but we seek the city that is to come, conviction number two. Every Christian pilgrim is controlled by those two convictions. The first conviction is about the things that are here, 
The second conviction is about the things that are to come. Here we have no lasting city. That means here we are not owners. We are not owners. The ownership view of life belongs to the old creation. In the old creation, everything is yours. It is your marriage. It is, they are your kids. It is your time. It is your money. It is your job. It is your property. It is your vacation. It is your life. Those are all the mottos in the old creation. In the old creation, even the gods are yours. They exist to do stuff for you, to give stuff for you, because you did something for them. In the old creation, Satan wants you to think you own your life. Satan wants you to think everything is yours. He wants you to think you have a lasting city right here. But for the Christian, everything about life here is now different. Because of our union with the risen Christ, Christian pilgrims do not have an ownership view of life. They recognize that that is Satan's gimmick. Here we have no lasting city. The Christian delights to hear that again and again. The Christian welcomes the jolt of those words. I have no lasting city here. I own nothing here. It is all my king's not mine. Joseph and Mary quickly learned their lives were not their own. Joseph's wife was not his. Mary's husband was not hers. Joseph and Mary's son, not theirs. They learned that everything about their lives belonged to God, And it would all be used to reveal to the church and the world who Jesus Christ is and how immeasurably better is the home he creates by his body and blood, the new creation. Beloved, that is what your life is for. Why do you have five sweaters and not four? Why do you have ten pairs of shoes and not six? Why do you have an extra hour of disposable time on a Friday afternoon? Why do you have the house you have, the job you have? The answer can be nothing other than this. You have it all for the purpose to show how immeasurably better is the home that Christ has created for you by his body and blood. That is how a pilgrim sees everything that they own. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we no longer regard any man according to the flesh. We once regarded Christ Jesus according to the flesh, but do so no longer. And do you know what the next verse is? All things mean nothing except for the new creation. Slight paraphrase. We don't regard men by their height, their family heritage, by their accent, by the speech, by the language they speak, by the money they make, by the education, the credentials they have achieved. 
We are certainly glad that that puts them in certain stations and offices to give order to the world. But at the bottom line, we agree with Paul. We regard no one any longer according to the flesh. They are either part of the old creation, needing a revelation of Jesus Christ, or they are part of the new creation, needing to be strengthened in that same revelation. I want you to think about Joseph, the Christian pilgrim, and then we'll talk about Mary. When Joseph found out Mary was pregnant during the engagement period, he was going to quietly divorce her because he is a just, upright man. He did not want to make her life a scandal. But the angel appeared to him and commanded him, take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph's life was no longer his own. He would not be arranging it as he thought best. The word of God comes to him as a grown man and puts him in service to a baby. His life will now be arranged for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High. Now think about Mary, the Christian pilgrim. When the angel Gabriel visited Mary, she was living in Nazareth, a virgin teenage girl living with her parents. But God graciously intruded upon her life. The power of the Most High overshadowed her. She was miraculously pregnant with the Son of God. And in a few months, no less pregnant, I think that's how it works, Mary is leaving Nazareth, leaving her parents, leaving everything familiar, no nesting, no painting, no decorating the nursery. Where is she going? She is going to Judea. She is going to the city of David. She is going to Bethlehem because Caesar has called for all the world to be registered, each man to his hometown. Joseph takes his pregnant wife on a journey by foot to Bethlehem because he is of the house and lineage of David. Mary does not get the home life she dreamed of. She will not be arranging her life as she thinks best. Her life will be arranged by the word of God to reveal and to exalt the Davidic king, the Messiah, because it is only him. As Gabriel told her, it is only Christ whose kingdom will have no end. All the kingdoms of the earth will have an end. Take one of them, anyone. Pick it up and look on the bottom, and it says the expiration date. Some will be sooner than you think. All of them will come to an end except the one kingdom of David's greater son. And Mary has no little kingdom of her own that she wants to keep anymore. None that she wants to protect anymore. She will be given the kingdom of her son, her Lord, her Savior, given it. She doesn't even have to build it. She just receives it. All Christian pilgrims, beloved, are called to abandon 
the ownership view of life because it's of the old creation. Here we have no lasting city. Here on the earth, we have no kingdom that is unshakable. The kingdom that cannot be shaken is where? It is above. It is in Christ Jesus. So here we are always leaving, not clinging. Here we are always giving ourselves away to make Christ and his kingdom known, which means the pilgrim life will be marked by suffering. It will be marked by trials. It will be marked by difficulty. A pilgrim life not ruled by the lust of ownership will always be under a cross. But we have learned from Christ that the goal of the pilgrim's life is not to avoid difficulties because he is the pioneering pilgrim. He has gone first, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the first one who has showed us that his kingdom is not of this world. He did not scoop it up and keep it. He did not build a great house somewhere in Florida or Colorado. He has already shown us that we, like he, are pilgrims and we will have a cross on us. He said, take it up and follow. So we are not to avoid difficulties. Instead, we are to rejoice in difficulties. Let me challenge you right now. The degree to which this identity as a Christian pilgrim is far from your heart is revealed in how little you are able to rejoice in your difficulties. Scripture says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4.13 Do you have difficult duties because Christ has come to you and now commands you? Do you have difficult people because Christ has come to you and commanded you and bound you to them? Do you have difficult doctrines to believe because Christ has come to you and commands you to believe them? Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice greatly. Things are difficult not because something is wrong. Things are difficult because something is right. Christ has made you one of his pilgrims. Things are difficult because the world is no longer your home. If it was, things would be less difficult. You could quit people that are difficult. You could quit duties that are difficult. Don't you see it? The world has quit all the difficult people in the church. The world has quit all the difficult doctrines in the church. The world has quit all the difficult duties of the Christian. If you were of the world, you could quit with them, and they would say, you did the right thing. Beloved, every difficulty is a sign to you that you are a pilgrim of Christ, that you have been taken out of the world, that it's not your home. The world does not love you. It does not approve of you because you don't do the evil it wants to do. Things are difficult because this is not home. But the day is coming when you will be home. And then all difficulties will end. But for the world, they shall never end. 
Now we said earlier, or I said earlier, every Christian pilgrim is controlled by two convictions, and we saw those in Hebrews eleven thirteen. Here we have no lasting city. The second, but we seek a city to come. We seek the city that is to come. This is our second controlling conviction. The city to come. Now, according to Hebrews 11.10, this is the city whose designer and builder is God. According to Hebrews 12.22, it is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, of which the earthly was only a copy. According to our Lord in Revelation 3.12, it is not just a city, it is a temple city. He says there, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name, a city temple. Then later in Revelation 21, 22, this clarification is added. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. What this means for Christian pilgrims is that Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, is our true home. Christ alone is the only place of reconciliation between sinners and God. Christ alone is the only place we can dwell with God. Christ alone is the, the only eternal refuge and city fortress for us sinners. He is the only place of blessedness and rest forever. And we do not have to build this. He has built this city by his own body and blood. We do not have to strive with all the scraps and junk of this passing evil age to build some kind of permanent city. It's been built. Its cornerstone has been laid. It shall not topple. It shall not be shaken. It has all been done in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and he gives you this temple city. It is your true home. As he says himself in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, live like pilgrims. Listen to it. Therefore, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, do not be afraid to lead a pilgrim life. In fact, be so generous with your life in this fading world where you really own nothing. Be so generous that you keep strengthening your own heart in the treasure of heaven that will never be taken from you. Were Joseph and Mary pilgrims of the city to come? Yes, they absolutely were. And you know who made sure of it? Our Lord Jesus, 
our 12-year-old Lord Jesus made sure. He forced them to see that they were pilgrims. Remember what he did at the age of 12. On the family's yearly visit to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, Jesus stayed behind in the city of Jerusalem. Because families traveled in large groups with many relatives, caravans really, they did not notice he had stayed behind until they stopped that first night, a full day away from Jerusalem. Jesus was missing. What was Joseph and Mary's experience during those three days of looking for him? Well, they tell us when they tell him in 248, great distress. Parents, you don't have to think much about what that means. We lose a kid for two hours, and we are already in great distress. Three days. It was like Jesus had died to them. But where did they find him? Verse 46 says, after three days, they found him in the temple. And his mother said, son, 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 why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? By mentioning his heavenly father there in his answer, Jesus is responding directly to her use of the title son. He is saying softly, as an obedient son would say, woman, you have forgotten who I am. I am a son but I am not your son. I am from above. My father is in heaven, and this is his house. But Jesus is saying something wonderful to Mary and Joseph. He is giving them a foretaste of the resurrection, isn't he? Hiding as if in death for three days, and then appearing in his father's house, home, and making it such that they must seek him and only find him finally in the father's house, because that's what he has come to do. Even for Joseph, even for Mary, he has come to open the father's house to them, and not just a heavenly or an earthly house. Because what did our Lord Jesus say when he spoke of his own body? John 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews heard this and responded, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? John writes, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Through his body and blood, he would finish the judgment owed to our sin, completely fulfill it. 
completely reconcile sinners to God and open for them through his own resurrection the temple of his father's house in the eternal Jerusalem, the city that cannot be shaken, whose designer and builder is God. All of this was a sign to his church, even though his parents didn't understand the saying when he said it, but it was a saying because it was weighty with theology and hope. All of this is for the church to see that when it looks like we cannot find Jesus in this world, when it looks like as pilgrims we are beaten and persecuted and there seems to be nothing bright in this world, Jesus says, you can't find me because I have gone to my father's house and you shall find me there. And he has already gone there. In fact, he's been there since three days after his death. Beloved, you are called to be a Christian pilgrim. Abandon. Abandon today. Talk about it at home. Ask somebody who you live with who has heard this message, how can we put an end to our ownership view of life? How can we stop living by the metrics and rules of the old creation? Christ has told us to regard no man any longer according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Beloved, he calls you to this life because he has given you a secure home. It shall not be filled with rust and dirt and it will not be empty and abandoned when you get there. The great high king is there. Let that give you the strength of heart to sell your possessions, to give to the needy, to stop living for yourselves, to stop trying to always make a home in the old creation. This is fading away and it shall be burned up, but his house shall never fail. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the testimony of your word that the reason we are alive in Christ is to touch and see everything, to reveal that his house is better and more real and eternal than anything of this fading world. Father, let us not be fooled. Let us not think we have a home here or that the things in our reach are our own. We only have them for one reason, to use them to testify to our soul and the souls of all men that the house Jesus built by his body and blood that he has taken to the heavens is better than anything, and it shall not fail. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of your home. We thank you for making your dwelling with us, coming to us by your spirit, and even now dwelling in us, and giving us a clean sight by faith that our nature has been exalted above the whole creation 
in one man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that he alone deserves all our praise, affection, study, hunger, and desire. O Lord, give him to us in strength so we might follow him out of the world without fear. In Jesus' name, amen.